0: From the LA Times studios, this is Asian Enough. Each week on this podcast, we talk to one Asian American celebrity about the joys, the complications, and everything else that comes along with being Asian American. I'm Frank Sean.
1: And I'm Jen Yamato. This week on episode eight of our podcast, we are joined by chef Nikki Nakayama. She's the owner of the Michelin-starred En Naka, a restaurant here in L.A. that you might have seen on the Netflix show Chef's Table and on the dream dining lists of foodies everywhere. Nikki is a native Angelina world-renowned for her California take on the traditional multi-course Japanese kaiseki meal.
0: Nikki talked about her first visit to Japan and the crazy things that people try to do to get a table at her restaurant. She'll also talk about the unique experience of growing up in an Asian-American enclave like the San Gabriel Valley. Yeah.
2: Like, where are all the cheerleaders and, you know, jocks that you see growing up on TV? This isn't My high school does not look like this.
1: We talked to Nikki before California Governor Gavin Newsom required that all restaurants halt in-house dining due to the coronavirus. Since then, Nikki and her crew have been making beautiful bento and jubacco boxes that you can pick up at n Naka. Full of delectable bites of dishes like grilled miso black cod, braised abalone, seared wagyu salad and matcha white chocolate cake.
0: Yeah, I was already kind of obsessed with bento boxes and this one just looks amazing.
1: I'm drooling at the thought of it as we speak, but first onto our conversation with the chef.
3: Asian Enough is presented by Little America, now streaming exclusively on Apple TV+, in the TV app, on all iOS devices, and TV app-supported devices. This advertiser has no influence over editorial decisions or content. Look around you. It's a wireless world, and that means everyone needs a great pair of wireless earbuds. But before you go dropping hundreds of dollars on a pair, you need to check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. You already know Raycon earbuds started about half the price of any other premium wireless earbuds in the market, and that they sound just as amazing as other top audio brands you know. Their newest model, the everyday E25 earbuds, are their best ones yet. With six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a more compact design that gives you a nice noise-isolating fit. When I got my pair, they were game-changing. I work from home sometimes, and it's important for me to stay focused. Raycon's wireless earbuds let me listen to the high-quality music I love, whether I'm at my desk or walking around the house. The company was co-founded by Ray J, and celebrities like Cardi B and Brandy are obsessed with Raycons. So pick up a pair and see what the hype is all about. Now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash Asian Enough. That's buyraycon.com slash Asian Enough for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds com slash Asian Enough.
1: Now, you and your namesake restaurant in Naka have established some of the best reputations in, in the country for what you do. You've got celebrities drooling over your food. Um, you've got big fans and people like Chrissy Teigen. You have people coming in from all over the world trying to eat your food, hoping to eat your food, and probably doing some some pretty inventive things to get one of those reservations. But we want to know, what was your first food memory? My first food memory, one of my favorite things to eat is,
2: I just love rice. And then, not just rice, but I love Eggs and rice. So like any kind of eggs, generally when I was growing up, in Japanese food you can eat raw eggs, but in the States you can't. So we have to like uh, pan fry or boil it. But it's the idea of mixing that egg with the rice and pouring soy sauce on it. If there was nothing to eat, it was always eggs and rice.
1: Was that you making that for yourself or was that somebody else making it for you? That was my grandma or my
2: mom making it for me.
1: And then when I got to do things at home because I had
2: cravings, I got very creative. Creative with, like, found ingredients? Yes. One of my best things that I felt like I created when I was young, so I was craving pizza. But we don't have pizza at home, and it's not like you can make pizza. So I just got, like, the gyoza dumpling skin, and I put ragu spaghetti sauce on it, (laughs) (laughs) and I cut the craft slices of cheddar cheese and some (laughs) ham, and I toasted it. And then I was like, oh, my God, it's pizza. And then I ate it. And then I gave it to my sister. And she was like, that's bad. I was like,
1: are you sure it's pizza? She's like, no, it's not pizza. And now you're like, see, it was cuisine. Yes. I was like, see, that was creative.
0: What was your mom's food like?
1: We ate a lot of,
2: like, Japanese-style American food. For example, like, omelet rice. Mm. Or, you oh, know, I
0: love omelet rice. Yeah,
2: yeah, like, <laughs> omelet rice. We ate a lot of tonkatsu. Mm. We ate... Um, curry rice we just had a lot of things like that but we also ate really cleanly too we ate a lot of like you know in japanese we say ohitashi. it's just like boiled vegetables with soy sauce or just very simply my parents they started as a seafood market and then um they would always have fish and seafood at home and i remember growing up thinking i hate seafood like i just want meat can we just have meat and then they're like no
3: we have (laughs) seafood
2: seafood is good for you and it was that kind of household, like where you can get a lot of things, but you're like, I just want something else.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely grew up eating all Chinese food, right? Mm-hmm. And then, but I grew up in the South, and so I wanted to try like Crystal and White Castle. Like, what was that food that you couldn't get that you wanted to get? McDonald's. Because
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. back in the days when I was growing up, that was what was nearby. It was like, I looked to the left, it's McDonald's. I looked to the right, it's Burger King. Ah,
0: uh, well, I wanted to ask you basically about kaiseki and your experiences going to Japan and learning to cook that as a Southern California, born and raised Japanese American. But first, uh, how would you describe kaiseki?
2: I always have to tell people when it comes to kaiseki that it's the most formal way of dining in Japanese cuisine because it's a, a very completely thought out meal. It's not just, you know, where you randomly pick things and put it together. It's a formalized meal where you really have to think about the ingredients and you also have to think about the cooking methods that really highlight the ingredient. And it's about seasonality, about representing the area that you're in. What I always say that the thing that I love most about Kaiseki is that it's really about showing gratitude toward nature, like um, this feeling of really appreciating what nature has to give you and then giving back by doing the best things that you can do to the ingredients to highlight
1: them and make them shine. You're like honoring yes. their essence. Yes. I didn't realize
2: how how much of an outsider I was until I actually went to live in Japan. Because I remember growing up here and thinking, oh, you know, one day when I I remember like around the age of 12 I was like, I, I think I want to go to Japan to study. I want to like live there and uh, experience that kind of life just to see what it's like so different from what, I'm, what I've known. And I thought that would would be an amazing experience for me to do it. And I always had planned it in my mind that I was going to go after high school and just sort of experience the lifestyle. And it was only when I actually went there did I realize like, oh my gosh, I think I'm so much more American than I recognized when I lived in America. Mm-hmm. Because there's just so many things that are so different from our lifestyles. And there's so many cultural nuances that if you're not familiar with, you could come off as being offensive to people. I felt like I had a really good education about those nuances, but it's only when I went there that I realized, oh, I can't walk around and eat at the same time because that's not what you do in Japan. Like, and then I can't sit in the subway with my legs all spread out because I'm so tired. It's like I just have to sit there properly and behave. Yeah, and I think one of the most hardest things when it comes to trying to get into what I wanted to do with cooking was finding the right place to sort of accept what I wanted to do. Luckily, I had relatives there that were willing to take me in and give me that training and things like that. But I felt that there are a lot of differences. But at the heart of things, I always feel like I can relate. So it's very difficult. I think at one time, I really wanted to be a part of the society but then after as I got to know it a little bit more deeply I just felt like I think the best thing is just to
1: be who you are yeah and you came home yeah (laughs) well what was it actually like growing up
2: here I think one of the things that was different growing up here is unlike how it is maybe now there weren't as many Asian people when I was growing up and I felt like I had one Japanese classmate I had maybe like Three Korean classmates, maybe there were two Chinese classmates, but it just felt very, on some level, isolating at one point. I hadn't really thought about it. It wasn't like a big deal. It wasn't like I felt any sort of not belonging, but I, I noticed that there were differences.
0: I thought about like being Asian, I guess, or, being, or seeing how different you were from everyone else?
2: Yeah, you know what? I didn't really think about being Asian until I actually moved to the San Gabriel Valley. And that was really a unique experience because the high school I went to had maybe, it was probably 70% Asian. The thing that struck me was like, this is not how I imagined high school. Yeah. Like, <laughs> where are all the cheerleaders and, you know, jocks that you see growing up on TV? This <laughs> My high school does not look like this.
0: Yeah. When was, did you
2: move? 8th grade. Mm.
0: That was the thing that blew my mind. I'm from Tennessee, so that was the thing that blew my mind the most about California is that there's a majority Asian high schools. You know? Right. Because I was like one of, you know, two or three in my high school. Right. In, in Tennessee. Right. And so, you know, coming out here, like, I'm like, oh, I'm Asian, and then there's all these other Asian people, and it's like, I, <laughs> I need to have a new <laughs> kid, you know? Uh, so, did you move to Arcadia in eighth grade?
2: No, we actually moved to Monterey Park area.
0: Monterey Park? Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: There weren't as many Chinese as there are now, but there were a good amount of Chinese people. I felt very lucky that I have classmates that are still my friends today.
1: So, you grew up in this very diverse Mm-hmm. place like mm-hmm. i'm I'm from the Bay Area, and I had okay. I feel like I had a similar experience in that I wasn't the only Asian person in my high school. Uh, I was very diverse, but I didn't really think about my Asianness mm-hmm. until i I grew up, especially uh, after I moved to l a and I wonder what your experience is like in this very multicultural Los Angeles were you always interested in other foods as well? Or what was it that ultimately brought you back to Japanese cuisine? Let's see. That's a really interesting question. I think growing up in L.A., you really do get a sense
2: of the diversity. And luckily, you also get to try a lot of kinds of cuisines and you're exposed to different cultures. I think what made me want to stay within Japanese Food was the one experience that I had when I went to Japan and I ate this like amazing kaiseki meal. And it was like, wow, this is what food can be about. Because up until then I hadn't experienced food as a very personalized celebratory type of experience. Like you, you know, we celebrate with family all the time. And for me growing up, that's like one of the best things about holidays. But to have it, like, just be this amazing meal that unfolds itself, kind of like finding little surprises and treasures throughout. And it's just like, that's what I want to do.
0: Do you remember any of those bites? Or could you describe any of those dishes or anything? <laughs> the first the, <laughs> first, the first. Well, yeah. one of
2: the things that I tried was I had never had sashimi like that before. It was just like, what is this sashimi? It's like I, I know these fish, but it tastes very different. And it was like, no, we have different soy sauces for different things in Japan. Like you have a sashimi soy sauce, you have a soy sauce for cooking, you have a soy sauce for soups. You have so it's like all I know is kikoman. <laughs> you know? And it's black. But it was it was a very, very, like, oh, to think about food in those ways was a very eye-opening experience for me.
0: Do you think being, like, Japanese-American has been a barrier or, like, an access point to kaiseki and Japanese culture?
2: I feel like it has been both. When I think about trying to get into... Japanese traditional cooking. I think originally when I set out to open Enaka, there was this concept like, oh, I have to do what people understand kaiseki is. I shouldn't put my own voice in it. I mean, there is this thought in my mind like, oh, I didn't even think about veering from what it's supposed to be because that's what I experienced. And then as time progressed. And then my one visit to Japan after opening in Naka in 2015, it was like talking to other Japanese chefs about, you know, what kaiseki means to them. And everybody's just like, well, you really have to represent the area that you're from. And I was, I thought to myself, like, how am I doing that if I'm not really talking about California and I'm just bringing only Japanese ingredients? Then it hit me like, I really need to tell a story about our, my personal environment through kaiseki, It all came together. I was like, oh my God, this makes so much sense. Because I used to get somewhat offended when people would come in and be like, well, this is Kaiseki, but it's not like what we have in Japan. And I was like, well, because we're not in Japan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like if we're in Japan, like if you want to experience like the very real Kaiseki, you should go to Japan yeah. and sit in a room that is like showcasing Japan. I mean, come on, seriously, yeah. like the weather is different. the The air is different. You're not going to experience the same thing. And then it just made sense to me. It's like, that makes sense. Like, I really need to have this place where it feels like it's talking about California. But then these are the techniques that I know. And this is the philosophy that I really believe in. And then to sort of put it all together.
0: That's interesting. So, Mm -hmm. like, you sort of define authenticity within Kaiseki as being less Japanese in flavors, right? Mm -hmm. Being more Mm -hmm. Californian because you are here and that's who you are.
2: Right. And I always think, you know, growing up, one of the things that I was really appreciated about having different cultures in my life is like, you know what? The one thing that is really amazing is like Japan has this amazing culture. America has its own amazing culture. Like, but how lucky am I to be able to pull from both things that I really like and believe in and then to take and then not use the things that I don't believe in? So I think that is one of the best things that like being here in LA or just like being born in another country offers you. You have the ability to absorb other cultures and really, really think about what you believe in and not to have to be like, follow either one
1: because that's all you know. Can you describe an example of a dish that illustrates exactly that that concept? So one of the things that we
2: have on the menu that I really, really like, it's using a California rockfish. That we marinate in soy sauce, and then we grill it Japanese-style, binchotan, and then we smoke it with a California rabbit tobacco. This is a very Japanese method, but the flavor is also Japanese. But then we're using a California fish, and then we're using California herbs to Dress it up a little bit more.
0: That's fascinating.
2: I think initially it was a hard thing to try to convey to people who are accustomed to having having a belief of what kaiseki is. But I do believe at this point that people come in not expecting what they would get in Japan. And I think the more open-minded they are when they come in to just experience what we're doing for what it is, the more they are able to enjoy it. And luckily I feel like at this point people do that when they come in. They're not coming in... To trying to distinguish how we're not Japanese.
1: One thing I really love about, about it is even the name and, and, the, and the stylistic, the, the form of it is very declarative and it's bold and I think it, it does in a way like set this tone for this is your voice and uh, within these walls... That's what you're about to experience. But was it hard for you to to put your name on the <laughs> restaurant? <laughs> this is funny because I was like, you know
2: what? I've been cooking for so long and I've been dreaming about opening like a very personal restaurant, like my restaurant. And I thought, I'm going to put my name on it. I know it's really egotistical on one level, but I also feel like it's sort of... A thing where, like, if I fail, I'm going to go down in flames and it's <laughs> like, it'll be great. You know, it's like, I'm going to put that on myself. Like, look, you know, you want to put your name on it? You better be ready. <laughs> that was the mindset.
0: So I wanted to ask you about how you think about authenticity. In general, for Asian American cuisines and Asian cuisines, like, people have an expectation of authenticity that's that's greater. And so everyone who makes it and eats it has, is kind of subject to those expectations. So... Yeah, how do you think about authenticity?
2: I think authenticity really comes from a deep understanding of what you're trying to convey. The reason I feel like on some levels that I can somewhat alter some of the things that I do in Japanese cuisine is because I feel like my understanding of it is good enough that it allows me that freedom. It's only when you only skim the surface of something, of another's cuisine, and you try to put it in your own without deeply understanding the background to it that it feels inauthentic right sometimes when i've had a dish where the chef has combined a little bit of chinese a little bit of japanese a little bit of korean a little bit of southeast you know southeast cuisine and then like put it all together and then i understand that that's what they may have experienced growing up or eating some things but there's like a little bit of misunderstanding of or respect to those cultures by combining it all together without having it be a very deep understanding of why those
1: dishes taste what they taste like.
0: Right. You can innovate, but has it has to come from a place of knowledge.
1: Right, right, thing? right. So what did it feel like for you when En Naka really took off? Months in advance, people have to like wait uh, on their computer to make your reservation. I, One of my friends, who will go unnamed, <laughs> told me that he pleaded with you. or He sent like a very earnest email begging for a spot uh, for his birthday. And you were gracious enough to grant it to him. And then he had the best meal of his life.
2: That's amazing. Mm -hmm. I'm like cringing as I hear this. Like, oh, no, I hope we didn't disappoint. You know what? The funny thing is when Jonathan Gold came in and wrote his piece and I saw it without knowing that I was going to see it. I saw it and I was like, oh my God, this is like, I, I'm like, I think it's pretty good. Then I was like, after, it was on Saturday that it came out. Cause back then it was, it came out on Saturday and I was like, maybe I should just cut this whole article out and paste it over my bed. <laughs> <laughs> like over the, <laughs> and then, cause it'll always be hanging over my head. Like that's what I was thinking. <laughs> like, and then it was just kind of like this, this feeling like, oh my God. I don't know if this is a part of being Asian or just being female and being Asian, but anytime something good does happen, there's this feeling like, well, this is great that people are saying all these great things about you. But then there's this other half of it where it's like, well, you have to live up to the hype. You can't just be like, oh, I got this great thing and like smooth sailing. It's like, no, that means we have to try harder.
0: Yeah, that's so hard. Like, why can't it just be like, I got this recognition. I'm awesome. (laughs) Well,
1: (laughs) what's the craziest thing somebody's done to try to get a reservation with you?
2: The craziest thing somebody's done is I think they came to the back door of our restaurant and tried to talk to Jeffrey, who, who, like, oversees a lot of the reservations, and he was like, hey, what can I do to get a reservation? And Jeffrey's like, oh, you know, I'm so sorry, we're fully booked today, we don't have space. He's like, what if I, you know, hand you some money? Or And then Jeff's like, no, we don't have space. And he's like, what if I let you drive my car? <laughs> I, was like, I feel very honored that people feel mm-hmm. that, and it's really nice when people are so genuinely wanting to come to eat, and I hope that um, it just makes me feel like you know, when they make such an effort that we really have to do our best to sort of make their experiences worthwhile.
3: From an early morning breakfast burrito to a bottle of wine after work, sometimes you just need what you need delivered fast. And that's where Postmates comes in. On days where work gets crazy, I know I can count on Postmates to bring me the lunch I need to keep my energy high and make my deadlines. Just yesterday, I got a handful of last-minute projects and hadn't had time to pack lunch. Luckily, Postmates saved the day and delivered me my favorite salmon poke bowl. But Postmates doesn't just deliver burgers and sushi. They actually make my life easier with grocery delivery and whatever I can think of delivery too. Convenience stores, clothing stores, you name it. So no more trips to the store no more late night fast food runs, and I don't even have to worry about where to grab lunch anymore. Just download Postmates on iOS or Android, find your favorites, and get anything you want delivered within the hour. For a limited time, Postmates is giving Asian Enough listeners $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days on Postmates. To start your free delivery, download the app and use code ENOUGH. That's code ENOUGH for $100 of free delivery credit with no minimum purchase for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Anything you need, anytime you need it. Postmate it. There's enough uncertainty to go around these days, especially if you own a business. Luckily, NetSuite reduces it by giving you visibility and control. With so many critical decisions to make, you need the right numbers, and you need them right now. NetSuite by Oracle is the world's number one cloud business system. With NetSuite, You get financials, cash flow, payroll, inventory, and more, all in one place, so you have clear visibility and total control of your business. NetSuite customers have the flexibility to work from anywhere, with immediate clarity on critical information right at their fingertips. No more guessing, no more waiting. Make smarter decisions with confidence, because you've got crystal clear visibility into your numbers. It's time to join over 20,000 companies who trust NetSuite to stay in control don't wait to get your free guide and schedule your free product tour at netsuite.com/enough. That's netsuite.com/enough. NetSuite Business grows here. Asian Enough is presented by little America, the acclaimed comedy series now streaming exclusively on Apple TV plus, for your Emmy awards consideration. Inspired by the true stories featured in Epic magazine, Little America goes beyond the headlines and looks at the funny, romantic, heartfelt, inspiring, and surprising stories of immigrants in America, and they're more relevant now than ever. Episodes include The Cowboy, where a Nigerian student finds a sense of connection through Oklahoma's cowboy culture, and The Jaguar, where an undocumented high school student's life is changed by an urban squash coach. Apple TV Plus is available on the Apple TV app on iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, iPod Touch, Mac, select Samsung and LG smart TVs, Amazon Fire TV and Roku devices, as well as at tv.apple.com for $4.99 per month with a seven-day free trial. Customers who purchase a new iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Mac, or iPod Touch can enjoy one year of Apple TV Plus for free. Get Apple TV Plus and stream all of Little America today.
0: Okay, let's talk about Always Be My Maybe. It's a rom-com which came out last year starring Ali Wong and Randall Park. Ali plays a chef, and Marcus has a band and lives with his dad in San Francisco. And in high school, they hooked up, but when the movie starts, Ali and Marcus haven't seen each other in a while. And Keanu Reeves is the guy that Ali is dating. So the filmmakers hired Nikki Nakayama to consult on the film so they could get Ali's chef character right.
2: Yes, I was the food consultant for it. Ali had reached out to me by email and asked, she was telling me about this great project she was doing, it's a movie, and wanted to know if I would help put the food together for it. So I was tasked with uh, creating the visual food-wise or the menus for the restaurants that she had, which were um, the ones in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and then she wanted me to come up with
1: the food for the scene. The scene. The scene. (laughs) There's this amazing scene in which Keanu Reeves, is on a double date with Randall and Allie. How do I put this? It is the most hilarious and painfully feeling spot on. I don't know <laughs> depiction of like of like pretentious mm-hmm. haute cuisine Where there's a scene where Keanu is is served a dish and he's given headphones to listen to the wailing, the anguished wailing of the animal he's about to it. eat, and he he weeps as he as he his <laughs> food. Hey, Charles. Good to see you again, Mr. Reeves. You
0: too. Hey, may I ask, do you have any dishes that play with time? The concept of time. Ah,
2: yes. We have a meat course of venison sous vide. Comes with headphones so you can hear the sound of the exact animal you are about to consume, illustrating nature's life to death cycle. (laughs) And of course, everything you see on the
0: table tonight is edible. (laughs) Wait, so it's this? No, not the napkin, sir.
2: Don't eat the napkin, Marcus. Microgreens and lettuces encapsulated and served with dehydrated
0: seaweed and dried fish flakes. Sorry, fish food? Fish
1: flakes? Right,
0: which is fish food. We lightly scale the body of the fish as it swims, collecting the particles it sheds into the ocean. Oh, got it, so it's fish dandruff.
1: (laughs) Clear asparagus soup extracted
0: with a centrifuge, the all-black monochrome course, the flavor of Caesar salad. <laughs> yeah, Keanu absolutely kills this scene. Uh,
1: where did that kind of inspiration come from for this scene for you? I think, well, there was a lot of research on my end on what was
2: happening in the fine dining world. And there is this part of me that was like well there's some things that can be very artistic and very artful and really create an amazing experience and at the opposite end of that based on your perspective it could be like totally crazy and stupid like when done properly conceptual dining is fantastic it's inspiring and then when done poorly it can be kind of a joke and then I thought well I'm in the fine dining world, and I'm always looking for the right things to say via food. And if we can't laugh at ourselves on some level, then we're taking ourselves a
0: little bit too seriously.
1: Did you hear from anybody after No. No.
2: (laughs) Yeah,
0: I wondered if that was like a specific chef. No, there were no specific (laughs)
1: chefs that we were targeting. Somebody took their
0: their headphone venison off of the menu after this film or
1: something. I could also totally see somebody... Basically, replicating that restaurant and doing quite well. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I would go, honestly. Uh, but, uh, well, food is a big theme in Asian American films. And I just wondered if you had any, like, favorite filmic food moments, Asian American or otherwise.
2: In some films, well, definitely uh, Eat, Drink, Men, Woman oh, is yeah. amazing. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And, um, like, Water for Chocolate.
0: <laughs> okay. I, I remember seen that watching
2: much. that. Uh, When we were in culinary school and I was like, that makes so much sense. Like if you cried into food, it could translate. Like in some films, well, definitely the emotions that you put into what you're making could possibly Mm. translate. And to live with that kind of idea when you're cooking is kind of a reminder to yourself.
1: While we're on the topic of art outside of food, there was a point in time in your life when you wanted to be a musician. And you were like a singer-songwriter sort of. What kind of songs did you... Right. What did you write songs about then?
2: This is like my senior year in high school, and the year afterwards. And you know, when you're that age, all you care about is relationships and how you can't get one that is <laughs> <makes it> happy, <laughs> or if you're one that is not yeah. really the one that's right for you. Mm-hmm. So a lot of like in my youth, thinking that they're deep. <laughs> I was a huge fan of Tori Amos. Oh yeah, yeah. So I really liked her music, and I also like thought that. Had I not chosen this career, it would have been awesome if I could just do scoring, you know, because I, I love how music plays a part. I mean, like it enhances the visual of something.
1: There's a, a, a memory I wanted to share, which is growing up, one of my earliest sense memories is the taste of my grandmother's, both of their cooking. And for years, as I was got older, I would treasure, absolutely treasure this jar of pickled umeboshi that my grandma made at home. She just had these, like, jars of omoboshi in her, like, basement. I am pretty sure that doesn't ever expire because it lasted me, like, a decade. <laughs> but, you know, like, that's one of those flavors that carries so much feeling for me. You already sort of described one of uh, your favorite childhood meals, but do you have flavors that you feel like just exist within you?
2: Yes, I feel like for me, that would have to be dashi, like soup. Because my grandma made amazing soup. I just remember being little and just be like, this soup is so good. And there was like all these things in it. I mean, they're like, I remember she just made some dashi broth with some vegetables. And it was like the most amazing thing that I ever had. And I feel like in Japanese cuisine, like just soup is just one of the most heartwarming and satisfying courses that you can have
1: and dashi to explain it is made out of dashi the most
2: popular way is made out of kombu and dried bonito flakes
1: and that's the kind of thing where you can go to like a japanese market and see dried dashi base right in a jar right. but it may never ever taste exactly the way your grandma made it right yeah
0: I was curious uh, when you and and Carol got married. Yes. Carol Ida. Um, how did you guys meet, by the way?
2: We met online.
0: <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> it's kind of
2: crazy because um, Carol actually lived in the same neighborhood as I did. We didn't know this when we first met. Carol's mom had a restaurant in Arcadia that was a sushi restaurant. And we used to go as a family all the time. And I always revel the fact that I actually knew Carol's mom before I knew her. That's incri-
1: <laughs> like you actually you remember. Yes, her I mom, was like, that's and the your mom. <laughs> <laughs> that also means that that you like tasted her family's cooking. Yes, yes. Oh, that's yes. beautiful. Wow. Yes.
0: How do your parents get along?
2: Uh, they get along really good. I mean, it's very formal on some levels because my mom's really shy and then Carol's mom is kind of shy too, and my mom's like a lot older now. She's not very social. But they like each other. Yeah. They're really nice to one another.
0: Did your parents react okay when, when you guys got together?
2: My mom, yes. It took a long time for me to actually even tell her about who I really am. By then, I always joke how, like, with Asian mothers, they're like, "Well, when you're, like, in your 18, they're like, don't date. When you're in twenty five, they're like, Don't date. And then when you're like thirty, you're just like why aren't you
1: dating? <laughs>
0: yeah.
3: You
1: know? Like,
0: go playing, out and
1: find somebody. I
0: was anybody,
3: your anybody.
1: My mom still yeah. refers to them as your special friends <laughs> to any any like uh, me or my sister whenever we're dating somebody. She's just so such a mom. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, but the thing about you and Carol is you also work together, which is pretty unique. Yes. Yes. And I think a lot of people
2: wonder how we're able to navigate that because, you know, we spend so much time together. The good thing is when we're working, we have very different roles that we do at work. You know, I make the menu, I give her ideas on certain courses, and then I just don't get involved unless she needs me to.
1: So in a culinary relationship like this, was there a period of time of like the getting to know you time of like cooking for each other and learning each other's like styles? That's a good question. For us,
2: not really. Because Carol, like I've always had it in my mind that she's just a very capable person. I just trust her. Like if I don't trust her and have her do her thing, then it'll feel like I'm micromanaging, which I don't really do well anyways. So I just sort of, you know, leave it up to her. I think she's more left with cleaning up my
1: mess than I am with the cleaning up hers. So it's a good way. It works. And what kind of foods do you guys like to eat in Los Angeles?
2: I have a few favorite places to eat. I really like yakitori. Mm. So we go to several places out in Torrance for yakitori. Um, one of them is uh, torihei.
1: Frank's Stop. writing this down.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and then... Um, I just I just enjoy very simple things, and we also like hot pots. And oh yeah! I think uh, Korean hot pots are really delicious. There's one called Soul Garden, and then we eat at home when we're cooking. We just generally do hot pot too. It's like really easy. <laughs> just cut up the vegetable and throw it in. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: It's now time for the segment we call Bad Asian Confessions in which we ask our guests about a time when they felt like a bad Asian or that they were not Asian enough. So Nikki, what's one of yours? Okay, my bad Asian confession has
2: to deal with eating my way through Japan. That sounds pretty good though. Yeah, (laughs) so this is really, I had this wonderful trip. It was three weeks and my goal was to eat my way through Japan and eat all the things that were traditional and really get a sense of what Japanese food is about. So, halfway through, I'd been eating, like, kaiseki meal, one after another, one after another. And then halfway through, I was like, God, I just want some cheese. (laughs) I just want a burger. (laughs) I was like, "I, you know, I love all these beautiful things about Japanese food. I love how it's so subtle. It's so beautiful. It's so clean. But at this point, I just want a really nice grilled cheese sandwich. And I felt (laughs) like I was being
1: really wrong. (laughs) Like, I have to do this secretly. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I had to
2: go to the side and eat it.
0: Did you find a good grilled cheese sandwich? I your...
2: did not. <laughs> I did not find a good grilled cheese sandwich, but I was just really satisfied just to not eat pure Japanese.
1: Hello, listener. Do you have a bad Asian confession you'd like to share with us? Call us at 213-986-5652. That's 213 213- Maybe we'll even serve it up on the show. Get it? Because this is a food episode. You get it?
0: Okay, that's it for episode eight of our podcast. It was an incredible honor to have Chef Nakayama on the show. Asian Enough is hosted by me, Frank Shong, and by Jen Yamato. Our senior producer is Rena Palta. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin. Our original music was composed by Andrew Epen, and this podcast is dedicated to the memory of Lina Anwar.
1: And come back next week. We're talking to Jonathan Park, a.k.a. the rapper and actor who goes by the name Dumbfounded.
0: You know, I've always thought it was an advantage for me to be Asian in hip-hop, you know? Like, you stand out. The open mics I would go to, there'd be like 100, 200 black kids on the corner, and I'd be the one Asian dude, and... I knew that, like, at least when I started rapping, people are going to be like, okay, what is he going to say? Like, people are curious. If you like Asian enough, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Jeff Berkshire, Reed Johnson, Shelby Grad, and Clint Shaw.
1: We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support latimes to subscribe. And remember, if you're going to go big, put your name on it. If I fail, I'm going to go down in
2: flames and it's like, it'll be great.